Welcome, everybody, to another Goon Intelligence podcast. I am David Marver of Change the Padres, joined by Padres Jagoff. Yes, we're here for a, a nice mini episode, a uh, little shorter than usual. A little shorter than usual. I, I want to start it off not with the news, well, not with the call-up news, but actually you threw out one of the first pitches at a game at Petco Park this week. Tell us about the experience. Yes, I threw it out on Monday uh, against the Diamondbacks. Um, I, as a, as a child and teen, had set a life goal to throw a pitch off of the mound of a Padres uh, at the Padres Stadium. At the time, thinking that uh, my mid-70s fastball uh, would get me into the majors and that it would come as a, as a pitcher. Uh, that did not happen. And uh, so this was fulfilled. I think I... I think it technically counts as fulfilling the life goal since I did, in fact, throw a pitch off the mound uh, at a Padres game. So uh, it was pretty thrilling. I warmed up at the uh, fastest pitch, uh, got the arm ready, and then... Still uh, mid-70s or what? No, I hit 66 on that. Although I'm not sure about that radar because you're throwing... uh, You're not throwing real baseballs. It's not as heavy. Okay. So I I think I could touch 70, but um, I don't know. So, anyways, I did that, and then uh, I got up. I, I got up. They have you wait on the field for for forty five minutes or so. I had my kid because she did the game ball delivery uh, to the mound, and um, so by the time I, I actually got up to the mound, I did it with a. I learned there's a hierarchy of first pitches. There's an honorary first pitch, and there's a ceremonial first pitch. And most people, when they think of a first pitch, are thinking of the ceremonial first pitch where they bring in, you know, someone they're honoring. Um, honorary is below that. Uh, it's apparently something that they just give to sponsors and corporate, you know, other corporations and things like that. I, I like to think that for the Padres, that's actually above it. Because if it's if, if you're doing the ceremonial one, it means you're like Charlie Sheen or Johnny Manziel. So I think that right. you're above it. Well, in my case, they had the uh, assistant police chief there as the ceremonial, and I get it, they're, they're honoring him. Um, whereas with me, it was uh, something I bought, and, and I did this because I bought it from Citibank. It was, it was actually a really good deal. It was four tickets for less than face value, and then you get this whole VIP experience as part of it. Uh, I'll probably write something about kind of some, some more secrets of the Padres of how to get these experiences. It's, it's actually fairly easy and not that expensive. Wow, that sounds like a really great bank to have. Citibank, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we could talk about that. I wouldn't recommend Citibank, but... Uh, I, I would. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, it was through Citibank, so I was announced as, as like, representing Citibank. Uh, I also did it... The, the, there were two people that threw the honorary first pitch. The first was uh, Rick something he's a dj he's the morning dj on jammin z90 so so that's about what the level i'm on is is a low level radio dj yeah but i, I mean just think a couple of years ago you were just some dude making dick pics on the internet and now yeah you know now you're you're throwing out uh, honorary first pitches yeah now i've got a little scratch and can uh throw out first pitches with with jammin z90 dj moving on up yeah so i got on the mound and uh Rick, the DJ, lobbed his embarrassingly to the catcher. And I think most people that throw a first pitch out just just lob it because they're they're so deathly afraid of being like Gary Delabate or uh, or like 50 Cent uh, and just throw a horrible pitch that winds up on YouTube. But I was determined that in my one chance to throw this pitch and achieving a life goal that I would I would bring the heat. And 
you get up on the mound and you know it's a Padres Monday night game. It wasn't very crowded, but you kind of you, you get a little nervous. And uh, so I took I took a little bit off of the pitch to make sure that I and also I'm not used to throwing off a mound. So that's a little bit different as well. But I think if you're throwing a pitch from the Padres mound, you got to go Trevor Hoffman change up. You know, that's that's what I would throw there. So uh, I don't think well, you're taking a little off. I don't know. Like if you're not throwing regularly, I'm not sure a circle change. I, you know, I'd actually thought about snapping off a breaking ball. but Or knuckler. But there's that. Yeah, I thought about that as well. But like the you have one shot at it. And I kind of think you, if you're going to do it, you got to bring the heat. So... I probably took five miles per hour off the pitch. I was probably low 60s, but I did throw a strike. Uh, I did get a compliment from the people in the Lexus seats when I got done uh, for throwing a good first pitch out and actually throwing it uh, over the plate, but uh, a little high. So, you know, all things being equal, I thought it was a really good experience. Obviously, I walked my kid out to the mound. She placed successfully delivered the game ball, and uh, I thought she was going to just chuck the ball somewhere or refused to let it go so that part went okay um as part of it you get to watch batting practice beforehand so i, I did get to see alexia marista he waved to me uh will myers uh did not wave to us but we were very close to him and uh wayne partello was there and he uh totally ignored us so that was exciting as well um so afterwards they held me in the tunnel and um they, they, they were like, hey, we just need to verify an email address for the pictures. So we wait in the tunnel um, behind the dugout. And then this this girl comes in with like a headset. And um, she was like, uh, hey, uh, I wanted to let you know that uh, Mike D has invited you to the owner's seats um, in the Lexus, Lexus Club. So, um, you know, I thought about it. I've sat in those seats before. They're, they're excellent. It's the best experience in sports, I believe. Um, and I declined the offer. Um, I felt, and, and honestly, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, but when Mike D found me when I was with the thin Gwyn, um, the day of fire Mike D, he offered me both of us to go sit in the, uh, uh, what is it? The perch. They're like the lifeguard seats. Uh, just, there's like four seats total, two, two sets of lifeguard seats out in the outfield. And I declined that as well. Um, for ethical reasons. And I think that one thing with Gwintelligence that we've frequently called out is uh, people like journalists, so-called journalists that are taking money from the team via Padre Social Hour, or they're taking on um, basically paid gigs from the team that they're supposed to be covering as, as independent journalists. Um, and I think we've made a big deal out of calling that out and, and even calling out blogs that I think take I, I think that there's a line that you don't want to cross if you want to be taken seriously. Um, well, not just that, but like in most, right. in most professions, like I, I know I take training every year. You know, it's one of those things you like click through and then you have to answer some sort of quiz at the end. And it's, uh, you know, you have to take it seriously. And for us, it's like you can't accept gifts that are more than $50 in monetary value. And I, and I think what you got offered would exceed that. So if we were, oh easily, I mean it was twelve. There are four of us. Yeah. Uh, so twelve hundred bucks. I mean, if you're going off that standard, which I think is a kind of a fair standard, it's not like they said, "Oh, hey, here's like you know a beer. Have a beer." I think you would accept the beer, but you know, actually, something that's worth a lot more is kind of. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I just don't. Too. I don't want to be beholden, and I don't want. I don't want. I don't think it. It tells a good story that. Uh, 
you know, I write all this stuff that criticizes people that take money or, or just, I, I don't think are acting in an ethical manner. And, and I'm with you. I, 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 my profession has a lot of ethical issues in it. Yeah. Uh, my limit's $15 per year. So I take, I take that seriously. And it, it was certainly very nice of Mike D to offer that. I don't know what his, um, what his reasons for doing it are. I don't know if it's it could, for all I know, it's a standard offer for people that throw out the first pitch. But for some reason, the situation, the way it happened, the way they held us in the tunnel without telling us why it doesn't really make me think that it's a, a standard offer. Um, so and I mean, and most so, I, so I turned it down. And, and most importantly, we just can't associate our intelligence brand with Mike D. I mean, I think it goes both ways at this point, right? Well, I think there's a time there's a time and place for it. We talked about it last week. the The invitation is still out there to come on the podcast and have an honest, open conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I just don't. That but, but for... Imagine that. Imagine we brought him on, and I took a twelve hundred dollar gift, you know, from the team, from him specifically. Like, how do you, how do you maintain any semblance of of independence after that? Yeah. And at the very least, and I've talked about it on Twitter. The, and, and this is my professional expertise is conflicts of interest. A perceived conflict conflict of interest is just as bad and just as damaging as an actual conflict of interest. So I, I just thought it was wise to, to not take it, which greatly upset my wife because she's sat in those seats several times with me. And uh, it's really a, a, a it's just a fantastic experience. Like I can't stress if you're sitting on if you've got two people and you're sitting on 600 bucks or so go on StubHub and buy one time in your life sit in the lexus seats it is the best possible experience like you have no idea what is under the stands in the lexus club and how great it is who you're going to run into in the club like it's just it's just outstanding and I've, I've sat in those seats at other stadiums and the padres do it the best by far so that was my first pitch experience well, I'm glad you had a great, great time um it's let let's jump straight into these call ups because it happened this morning. Um, Potters announced, or I guess I heard it through Dennis Lynn, uh, that the Potters will be calling up, um, I believe, six players. Uh, four of them, our significant prospects, and then another one, the, the core four. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair way of putting it. That's Austin Hedges, who was obviously he was up last year, so it's not his it's not his first appearance in the major leagues. Then you have uh, Manny Margot, perhaps a uh, Potter's top prospect. Hunter Renfro, a first-round pick from a few years back, who's been mashing in AAA. And then Carlos Asuaje, another guy we got back uh, in the Craig Kimbrell deal, who's had a very good year for El Paso. That, I believe, they're calling the core four. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that terminology, seeing as it's not really the top four prospects in the system. Um, and then on top of that... I'm not sure I'm not sure Asuaje is core four either, but... Yeah, we'll talk about that in a sec. And then they also called up uh, Jose Torres, who's a left-handed pitcher who was in uh, mostly in um, uh, AAA for the Pod- uh, sorry, Double A for the Padres this year. Got called up AAA and had a little bit of well, actually mostly Single A. He actually advanced from Elsinore up to the majors yeah. in one year. Yeah, and right he's kind of like Perdomo in that he's had like five years in Single A and rookie ball before this year. Yeah, he had 36 innings for the missions and another 25 for Lake Elsinore. So, yeah, I spent about even time between Elsinore and, and uh, San Antonio. I ranked him personally 65th, I believe, on our top 75 prospect list just because he, his numbers are so good. He's left-handed. 
Um, but the fact that he's like kind of a, a relief pitcher and probably going to be a lefty specialist um, with a, maybe, you know, an inning here or there, uh, you know, the, just the maximum value you can get out of that didn't make him much more than that. But I do think he'll be a mainstay in the bullpen for a few years. They also called up, called up uh, Buddy Bauman. They got him from the Royals this offseason. Uh, he's going to be a loogie. He's he's 28 going on 29. I, I don't really have much high hopes for him, but he could be like, you know, the fifth guy out of the bullpen uh, for the Padres over the next couple of years. Um, pretty unexciting. Well, he, he was on the 40-man roster already. Yeah, I mean, he's been in AAA all year. He's, he's thrown five innings already this season for the Padres. So I think if you've been watching every game, you're already familiar with him. Um, I went out on Twitter. I asked for some questions, got a uh, decent volume of them. Rather than just talk about the prospects, I figured we'd just answer some of these questions. Um, so the first two uh, kind of go together. Um, one from David Leland. He asks, do you see any way John Jay is back as a bench player next season? Uh, and the second one is from Kevin Crotty. He asks, starting outfield next year is. I think those kind of go together along with these call-ups. So uh, we've talked about this a little bit already, but now that we're towards the end of the year, that these call-ups have been made, what do you see as the outfield next year? Well, I mean, we've debated this. We've debated this on the podcast in that I think we differ on whether it makes sense to hold on to two probably natural center fielders. Uh, if it doesn't make sense to flip one for something more valuable or just a different position where you have a need. But let's say we keep them all. I mean, I think it's going to be Margot in left and Jankowski in center, maybe switching the two and then Renfro in right. I don't. I don't I don't think any of the other outfielders on the roster are are worth starting at this point. I mean, I like I guess I like Dickerson. He's kind of fallen off uh, recently, but he seems to hit. And I actually think he's he takes good routes in left field and seems to be fairly competent there. But I just don't think you can I don't think you sit. He's not good enough to sit Margot or Jankowski at this point. Um, I guess with Jankowski, I'm. I like him. He's really good. I like his on-base skills. He's obviously really great in the field, but I do have questions about how far the bat's going to develop and whether he can maintain his value, um, you know, with that hit tool. So I could see, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think it's in the realm of impossibility that he falls off and that we need another outfielder to, to play with Margot, but I, I would say that offhand, I think those three are, are, your, are your starters. And as far as John Jay goes, I, I could see them bringing him back, but my issue is I, I like Andy Green, but I do think that I don't trust Andy Green to, to not play Jay over one of the, the prospects. And I think for development purposes at this point, I mean, maybe you hold Margot down for a few months and call him up, but he's going to be up here next year. And I just, I, I watched Green at the beginning of the year start Jay when Jay was hitting terribly and fielding terribly and then keeping, you know, rule five draftee Jabari Blash on the on the bench and basically um, basically punting on, on playing him and evaluating him. So so that that scares me that Green could go with Jay and sit a Margot or a Jankowski, which I don't think is in the long term best interest of the team. Isn't that somewhat Preller's responsibility though, to make sure that Green doesn't do that? Like I, I don't think they should bring Jay back. I just think he's gonna be more expensive than he's worth, especially as a bench piece. Um, when I think he's going to get, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars, not a huge contract, but, but something worth far more than a bench outfielder. Um, but if you brought him back, you know, and, and you really wanted to give the youngsters playing time, isn't it on 
upper management to dictate to Andy Green that, look, John Jay is a bench outfielder. You must use him as a bench outfielder. We want Margot and Renfro and whoever else they're playing out there to have consistent full-time playing time. Isn't that an upper management issue? Yeah, I think so. But, I mean, as we learned today from Mike D, uh, A.J. Preller was out on the road uh, 75 of the first 90 days of the season. I mean, he's essentially an absentee manager of his people. So, and then who do you else, who do you have, who else do you have? You have Mike D, the uh, apparent interim GM right now, the head of baseball operations, who clearly, he all but admitted it today. I mean, he didn't take personal responsibility, but he took organizational responsibility for the, uh, you know, not, not tending to the team while AJ is out on the road. And I think that creates issues where, like you said, that's one of those things where a GM would, you know, a strong GM would step in and, and kind of guide the operations of the baseball I mean, team. That's what you and, saw in San Francisco. I don't know if you remember. Um, we used to rag on Bochi here in San Diego for not playing the youngsters. The one that really sticks out to me is Xavier Nady. Uh, but, but when he went to San Francisco, he actually tried to play Benji Molina over Buster Posey for a while until yes. management stepped in and was like, look, uh, you're, you have to play Buster Posey. And, you know, that was a great decision. Obviously, you know, it's hard to criticize Bochi with three titles now. But, you know, you have to imagine if there wasn't upper management interjecting there, exactly, you know, would Buster Posey's career have gone the exact same way? Maybe, probably, actually. But it might have taken a little bit longer to get there. So I think, you know, I'm not worried about A.J. Preller spending 75 of 90 days on the road because it appears to have paid off and us signing a whole bunch of guys. Uh internationally which i'm thrilled with uh especially because in the you know it's it's 2016 it's not 2004 you know you can conduct all your meetings and and do all that sort of stuff remotely you don't have to be in an office in san diego well i mean it's easy to say that except d basically said that the entire medical issue yeah, well, this, this whole records issue is due due to to aj being an absentee manager i would say that that's just completely made up like at this point i don't believe anything they're going to tell us about that because there's no reason for them to to tell us anything more than the fact that they've gotten suspended and, and that they accepted and to give platitudes when they get asked questions about it because all they're going to do if mike d goes out there and says yeah it's and you know he gives some other reason for it, you know, maybe that opens up the window for for more penalties. So, rather than you know, I, I don't know. I just don't believe anything that they're going to tell us about that situation at all. A quick aside on that. I don't know if you listened to the the D interview with Kaplan uh, today, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that Kaplan actually asked pertinent follow up questions, which I'm so not used to from Dan Cilio. Well, you know, ever since 1090 lost, I don't know if I want to say lost opted not to renew that contract with the Padres um, for the radio rights. I feel like we've gotten much better questions out of uh, not, not just um, not just Kaplan, but uh, Cilio, too. Now, granted, Cilios are still low quality, but they've been better. It, it used to be the, the softest of softballs um, and then talk about Miami football for 20 minutes. Um, but they, they've been... He's, he's, cut that, he's cut that down to 10 minutes. Well, now. yeah. There was actually a... Uh, I tuned in for an interview last week. It was, uh, or not last week, I think earlier this week, where it was supposed to be Cilio asking some college football pundit about the Aztecs. The guy was on for over nine minutes, 
There was a minute and 42 about the Aztecs before they got off topic and started talking about other things. That is just a microcosm of that show. But yeah, I digress. Back to the original question. I, I honestly, th- there's a difference between what it, what I think it's going to be and what it should be. I, I agree with you that I think it's going to be Marco Jankowski in center and left one or the other, and Renfro in right. And I think Renfro's in right because his arm is pretty absurd. For those of you who have not seen highlights of him throwing out guys at home plate, uh, I highly recommend it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty, the, the videos are ridiculous. They're pretty ridiculous. The question I have about him, obviously, is still range. You know, you and I don't have access to AAA range statistics, so we can't tell if he's going to be, you know, a Matt Kemp out there because Matt Kemp had a pretty decent arm too. He just couldn't get the balls. Um, so until you, you know, until we see that, I, I'm guessing that it's going to be Renfro and right and either Jankowski or Margot in, in center with the other and left. But I, I don't think that's what it should be. I, I think that Margot is such a huge prospect. He's still so young that I think it's actually worth keeping him in AAA and, uh, until the end of the Super 2 status has passed. I, I do think, I, I know he's not the type of player that gets a huge raise in arbitration, but when you look at his numbers, I mean, he's going to end up as a major league player, probably. It's going to have plus defensive st- statistics, plus base running, probably a very low strikeout rate comparatively, uh, and a high average. And I think that'll get him something at arbitration, probably in the range of maybe a 3 to $5 million raise compared to what he would get at league minimum. So I would say that it, it's actually worth it. It's in the Padres' best interest to keep him in the minor leagues until June. It's not in the best interest of us watching. It sucks. You know, part of me thinks it's going to be fun to watch him. And, you know, I honestly, I don't know how many extra tickets that will sell. I, I doubt it's, you know the three to five million figure I just put out there. But if it, if it turns out that you can get more money by having him in the major leagues and it recovers that lost arbitration sum in the future, then by all means you do that. But I, I just think. Well, I don't think he's that kind of player. And honestly, like for as valuable as Jankowski is, he's not a guy that's going to sell tickets as good. If he, even if he sustains this performance for, for a few years, he, he the skill set's just not the kind that, that brings people out to the ballpark. I'm not sure I agree with that. And I don't think Margot's Margot's not a, I don't think he's going to hit for that much power. I, I just don't think the speedy defensive center fielder sells tickets. They're valuable and people, once they're at the ballpark, enjoy watching them, but I, I it's not going to sell season ticket packages. I don't think, I don't think that's the right classification for Margot. I think he is speedy. I think he's a good defender, but you go look at his stats in triple a, he's striking out only 11% of the time. He's drawing a, he's right. drawing a decent I mean, amount of walks, and also like, yeah, you can you can nitpick at six home runs and 566 plate appearances, but at the same time, he's 21, about to be 22, so that's very young at that age or very young at that level, and he has another 33 extra base hits, 12 triples, 21 doubles. You know that's not necessarily El Paso inflated. So I think when he gets to the major leagues, I think he's the type of player that can be a light Andrew McCutcheon, and I think that does sell tickets. So I. I differ from you on this. I do think that he has a chance to be a franchise cornerstone type player. And who's to say he can't grow, you know, in terms of power? I mean, he has everything that you want when you look at hitters that would grow, in, you know, power-wise. He, it's not like he's, like, the stature of Alexi Amarista. You know, he's 5'11", which is, it's not, it's not your 5'8", five, 5'7", five, player. And even those guys, look at Jose Altuve this year. It's not like that's impossible anyways. So... I do think that there's a chance that three years from now, when he's about to turn 25 and he's had three years in the major leagues, that he's the type of player that's going to get a decent raise 
in arbitration. So I think that's something you have to at least think about with him. Yeah, and, and I mean, granted, look, I mean, let me let me put it this way: I, when I did the top prospect rankings for the Padres, I put him number one. So obviously, you know, I have him above Anderson Espinosa. I think only about twenty five percent of the industry has Margot above Espinosa. So I am on the Margot train. Um, well, I'm on the train as well. I, I'm not commenting on his skill level or skill set. I think he's going to be immensely valuable. I just think it's the kind of value that I, I just don't think it sells the casual fan on buying ticket packages. I think it does, though. I think, I mean, it's it's tough because I, I'm not, I don't have access to all. I mean, figures. look, Brian Giles was immensely valuable, but right? He, he got on base, incredible on base percentage, not that much power. Uh that's all he did and, was and Brian Giles wasn't selling any any tickets. Yeah, I mean, he was he was reviled by fans, by casual fans. Right, but I think Bargo is going to be the type of player that's going to make good plays in the outfield that's going to be exciting. He's going to steal bases and be exciting on the base paths. He's going to hit doubles, he's going to hit triples, he's not going to strike out a lot. He's going to do I mean, all of those things add up. I think it's going to be the type of player where you don't know he's how he's going to thrill you that day, but it, it might be uh, from hitting a triple and then making a nice play in the outfield and then, you know, stealing second base and then scoring on a single that's lightly hit to the outfield. Like, that might be the type of player he is. And all those plays are exciting, at least to me. So I, I think, you know, I, I kind of disagree with you there. I mean, I, if you compare him to, like, Renfro, who's going to be pretty much all home runs and maybe some outfield assists, I think Margot's a more exciting player. Uh, but, I mean... I do. I, you know, I, 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 I mean, I like, for me... For me, I agree. I, I think he's a more exciting player. But I think if Renfro hits thirty home runs, I, I'm just I'm speaking for the casual fans. I think I think that the average casual fan is going to look at Renfro's stat line and be more impressed. And that's not a statement on the value of either of them. It's I'm, I'm just from a marketing aspect. That's that's what I think. That's what I think they would try to focus on. I mean, it, we all know home runs sell. That's no secret. Let me uh, sidestep this conversation, by the way, and incorporate one of our listener questions. Uh, this comes from uh, Et Frosted Flakes, also goes by Chris. Um, and this is actually pretty similar to another two questions we got. Uh, it's a marry, fuck, or kill, which is something we've done here on the podcast before. Basically, there's going to be three players. You have to choose to marry one, choose to kill one, and choose to fuck one. So uh, I'm glad we are an illicit podcast through iTunes. The three choices you have here are Austin Hedges, we have not talked about yet, Hunter Renfro, and Manny Margot. Oh well, clearly we'd clearly we'd bang Austin Hedges. I mean, he's dreamy. He's so dreamy. Uh, I would. Who's the third one? Renfro. Renfro Margot are the other two. Oh, hmm. Uh, I'm gonna go Mary Margot. And I guess kill Renfro. Uh, Margot just seems real steady, dependable. Uh, Renfro seems like someone that's that could break our heart. I don't. I don't like when my heart gets broken. Yeah, I'm gonna go the same way as you, actually. But uh, I'm gonna put it in baseball terms. Uh, I think you want Margot here for the long haul. Obviously, he's the youngest. I think he has the highest upside. I think those are reasons you want the player with the franchise for a very long time, which is what I'm calling marriage. Um, I think if you're going with. Uh, you know, the, the next, I don't even know how to differentiate between fuck and kill in terms of baseball. I guess just have them there next year would be fuck. I guess that's Austin Hedges because he's going to come up and have plus defense immediately. His numbers in AAA this year offensively were absurd. I don't know if that'll 
follow him to the major league level. We've talked about it before. I watched a lot of highlights of him early in the season. He changed his uh, his stance. He used to have a very long uh, or like a, this this little toe tap. Now it's not there. He kind of like lifts the leg uh, and steps towards the ball. I think you know if you're looking for cause and effect, that's something you can attribute to his good season this year in AAA. So I, I think if I had to say, okay, for next year, who's, who's it going to be out of those two that's going to be useful? It's Austin Hedges. And I think you and I have talked on the podcast before that Hunter Renfro has high bust potential just because um, really high strikeout rate. And we don't know how his defensive metrics are going to turn out, uh, if he's going to be someone that just doesn't get to a lot of balls in the outfield but has a good arm. That's honestly not that useful. An arm is probably... You know, when you talk about a 5-2 player, the arm is probably the least important, at least from a from an outfielder. Um, so I think he has the highest chance. I mean, it's a guy who walked less than 4% in AAA. So I, that's how I would go. So we, we end up to the same answer, but... For yeah, you, for, you neglected to mention that Austin Hedges is just dripping with sexiness. I did forget to mention that. Yeah, purposely. you did. Um uh, so let's let's talk about the other guy that got called up that might have a chance of being here for a long time. That's Carlos Asuaje. He's 24. He's going to be 25 in November. So going into next year, he'll be 25. His position's kind of up in the air. He's probably going to be a second baseman or third baseman here at the major league level. Triple A numbers are pretty good, but not spectacular. He hit 321, but again, that's inflated with El Paso. He's another player that had a bunch of extra base hits, a whole bunch of different ways 32 doubles 11 triples nine home runs he was kind of an afterthought when we got him from boston but he's had a very good year for us which brings me to a a question i've seen people pose on twitter not just to me but to bill center and to other people that are closer to the team um what's going to happen with spangenberg aswahe uh shimp Solart? like what's going to end up shaking out as the lineup next year does does the Swat have a real chance of ending up in the starting lineup, do you think? Um, if he winds up in the starting lineup, I think it means something else didn't go right. So I, I don't think he's your first choice. I mean, the way Schimpf has produced so far, I mean, are, are Padre fans sold on Schimpf? I don't know. I mean, his his OPS is great, I mean, and... You know, his ISO is great, but his ISO is great because his batting average is so low. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I like Schimpf. He's he's Dan Ugla in, in his prime right now. But also Dan Ugla fell off a cliff at some point, and Ryan Schimpf's not young. So he's, he's a bust candidate, I think. I'm not sure he's someone you really count on long term. Um, we went into the season thinking Spangenberg had four war potential. And obviously he's, he has injury issues this year, and I I don't know if I would choose Aswahe over Spangenberg. Like honestly, I I don't know. Um, Aswahe really just he he seems like a valuable player, but if he's starting at third, I think that's not a great thing for the team. If he's starting at second, I think that's maybe passable, but not the best option. Like it, it's useful to have a guy that can fill in those slots and not be Alexi Amarista, but I guess I, I look at I look at what he brings to the table and and it, while valuable, I don't think I don't think it's someone you want starting. No, I agree. I think he's actually going to be like a good version of Amarista for the team. Um, 
you know, sort of used in the same way, play a little bit second, play a little bit third, I guess an injury filling at shortstop, maybe some corner outfield when you are doing some sort of double switch, but he'll actually be useful offensively. Um, I think that's probably the future for him. In terms of Shimp, I'm actually, you know, going back to what I said with Margot and starting him in AAA in order to, you know, uh, basically game that arbitration clock, I'd be fine playing Ryan Schimpf in left field, to be honest with you. I mean, his his offensive numbers are the type of player you would generally have in a corner outfield position. High strikeouts with some power. Uh, his defensive metrics at second base so far, not good. So I think when you're you're talking about optimizing the lineup to begin the year next year and getting all these guys looks at the major league level, I think the way you do it is with Schimpf in left field, Jankowski in the center, Renfro in right. Spandenberg at second, you know, Solarte obviously still still there at third unless they trade him. Um, and then you have a Swahe kind of filling in all over the place, getting bats, you know, sort of in the same way that Amarista was, but in a way that's a lot more palatable to the, you know, to, to, to most fans because I, I can't stand watching Amarista. So um, that's the way that I would do it. Now, that's not necessarily how I see it playing out. Uh, I know they tried Spangenberg at center field in the minor leagues at one point. And when he was drafted, they always said, uh, if he doesn't work out at third base or second base, he could be a center fielder. So maybe they'll actually move him to left field. Uh, I, I don't know how that'll work, but um, you know that's something that I can see happening. I don't see Aswahe really getting an everyday role next year, though. I, I think Schimpf in left field's intriguing. Um, I mean, I'm looking here, and I mean... I don't know who else it would be. Dickerson is he the is he the He's is he our current front runner for left field? I, I guess. I mean, and the thing with him is, field, yeah, I actually just I, I praised his defense earlier, and I, I just looked up his his value defensively, and it's it's very bad, very poor. It's worse in left field than than Schimpf is at, at second base. Um, and and Dickerson brings a lot less to the table offensively. I mean, Schimpf has accumulated, you know, despite his defense, he's accumulated two WAR in about you know, half a season's worth of at-bats, whereas Dickerson has accumulated, you know, 0.4. Yeah, so. and last year, and, well, and just, by the way, yeah, last year in Double uh, A for Toronto in, in New Hampshire, he actually played 117 innings in left field and 150 in right, and he has a career uh, total in the outfield of 954 innings. So I think it's something that he's, like, done in the past. Now, I don't know how those numbers were. Like, obviously, we don't have access to range factor and stuff. Well, range factor we have, but we don't have access to like defensive run saves in Double A, so we can't tell you if it was good or not. But it's something that it's at least there for him. Um, I think that's like a a pretty reasonable thing to do with him at this point. Because I don't think, yeah, you know, I mean, there's like, before the year I singled him out as one of the, uh, you know, if everything went right for the Padres this year, you know, they were going to be bad. But if they're going to be bad, you want them to at least have growth in either Will Myers or Spangenberg. That's what I said before the season. I don't feel any differently about Spangenberg. He got hurt, and he wasn't playing poorly before he got hurt. So I think he has to be your starter at second base. I don't even care what Schimpf does because he's going to be 29. He's not going to be someone that's probably in your long-term future when you're going to be good again. So um, if you can play him in left field and get more value out of him in the next couple of years and maybe he turns into an everyday left fielder, great. If not, you don't interfere with Spangenberg's development. Well, and let's be honest, he, he's striking out 31% of the time. Like, his, the way he's doing this, and, and all the credit in the world to him, but it, I, I don't know if it's sustainable. And if, our, if you're betting betting on it, if you're going to bet, like, benching Spangenberg to play Schimpf at second base, 
I don't know if that's a, a wise. I don't know if that's a wise. Well, the bet. thing is, I don't think his average and on base percentage is going to go down much. I mean, he's hitting two twenty three with a three forty on base percentage, and that on base percentage is valuable because his BABIP is only two sixty one. I think what's going to happen with him is that some of those balls he's hit for home runs are not going to end up being home runs in the future. I think he's been a little bit fluky in terms of his home runs per fly ball hit, which is something that normalizes across years. So, you know, if he does the same thing he's done right now, you know, 19 home runs and 300 plate appearances, if next year he only has 14 in those at-bats, you know, obviously that chops into his slugging and makes him a little bit less of a, a decent player. But his bat move is only 261. If that, if that stays where it is and he's still walking 12% of the time, he can strike out 30% of the time and be a useful player. But not if he's not playing decent defense, or at least if he's at a position that doesn't demand defense out of him. So I think left field is a sensible solution for him, um, especially because he's better than Dickerson, at least in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I actually called him Dan Ugla, but Dan Ugla was a lot better. <laughs> I pulled up his stats, and he hit for better average. He struck out a lot less. They walked about the same. But, I mean, that's kind of the – maybe Dan Ugla and the start of his decline is kind of how I see – Schimpf and I don't know. I, I was always a Spangenberg fan, so so count me in as Spangenberg at second base, personally. Okay, so um, let's take another fan question here. Was there one that you saw that stood uh, stood out to you that you wanted to answer? Um, let's see. There's one about Andy Green. What do we think? I think we've talked about this before. I think we're both happy with Andy Green. Um. I think the front office goes a little overboard in in uh, ascribing some successes to Andy Green, but he's certainly done well on the metrics as far as defensive runs saved. And I think he's other than other than maybe the first month of the season, the usage of players I think has been pretty good. So um, I don't know if we need to talk extensively about that. I think you kind of feel the same as me that he's he's probably adding some value. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I'm a huge stat head, so I look for, you know, those sort of things. I'm the type of person that when I watch football, if they don't go for it in fourth and two, I, I'm always pissed off pretty much unless it's the fourth quarter and it's like a difference between one and two scores. So my judgment of Green is, is pretty much based on that. I think he's a little bit over-aggressive, but I don't think it's to the point where it's truly hurting the team a lot. I'm kind of indifferent on him, but but... Uh, he's much better than Bud Black. So um, I do think in terms of was it the right call to fire Bud Black, blah, 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 I, I don't think they're a worse team because they got rid of Bud Black. I think that has nothing to do with it. Um, I do have one question here. I, I, I kind of like this one because it's a conspiracy theory, and I love conspiracy theories. Uh, this one comes from uh, Chad. He says, could AJ actually not be the GM and just a top scout, but he gets the title while D gets the responsibility? Hashtag conspiracy. Actually, he wrote it hashtag conspiracy. So I'm going to give him a little bit of a minus points for the spelling error there. But uh, what do you think? D gets the responsibility. Why would you give a guy with who's a who's a hype man with no baseball experience the responsibility to do anything? Uh, I I don't. <laughs> I like conspiracies. Uh, I could probably come up with a with a better conspiracy. Than this well, one. so I, I don't believe in this conspiracy either, but do you think it's possible, at least possible, maybe they didn't hire Mike D to have that role, but maybe someone in the ownership wanted to have a little bit more hands-on role with baseball ops, so they hired someone 
who could basically execute that for them? Do you think it's possible that, like, D takes a lot of direction from Ron Fowler in terms of baseball operations or Peter Seidler? Well, not Fowler. I mean, it came out that they they have they have big divisions. And uh, without going into my my sources, uh, I have a source that was that's that was in in the the inner circle of the front office that told me that the D Fowler uh, division goes way beyond just their opinions on, on AJ. They're, they differ on a lot of issues and that there are two distinct camps among the executives of uh, Fowler and then D and Seidler. So uh, I don't think, I don't think D's a Fowler's guy on this one. Maybe side. Okay. Well, okay, sure. Maybe Seidler then, but do you think it's possible that they've done this, they've structured it in such a way that, uh, not every decision is AJ's to make. I guess that he's he's kind of just a glorified top scout with the ability to execute some moves. Or do you think he's truly the full on GM? Like I, it's just I I think it's a fringe conspiracy. I, I don't want to give you know too many legs to these random different things. But the more well, the more I time I mean, goes on and the more so, things that happen, the more you start to wonder. You know, just the very fact that we can entertain these conspiracies is is something, right? Like. You, you talk about yeah, and, and the big question is like, why? Why is Mike D the head of baseball yeah. ops? Unless, unless he's asked to do some kind of intervention like that in in, in the operations. And I mean, even today, I mean, A. Fowler said that he's the interim GM, and then D didn't deny it. If you listen to him on on Kaplan, he he openly admits that he. He oversees. I forget how he words it, worded it, but he oversees AJ's actions at a higher level. And like, it sounds like veto power. It sounds like that to me as well. And he, he makes it sound like setting long-term strategy for baseball operations is like, oh, that's not meddling at all. Except that's long-term strategy is what guides everything that AJ does. So, um, I mean, this is something that's so yeah. There's always that question for a while, of, by the way, because. Um, not to rehash old news, because I know we hate talking about Anthony Rizzo because it just hurts my soul to talk about Anthony Rizzo. But I have it on authority that when that trade went down, there were people in baseball ops that wanted to veto that trade. People that were uh, – how should I say this? People that uh, did not have the ability to make the decision to make the trade, but that went tried to go over the heads in order to stop the trade from happening because they thought it was such a poor trade analytically. You can't give names. Can't give names. I'm not are, they, give, are they even? Are they even in the organization still? That would also give too much information. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name names. I, it's, it is a very good source. I certainly trust this opinion, I, or certainly trust this story, especially because it came out before Rizzo was a superstar. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where you, you hear those stories, and you know, again, it could be false, but I, I trust this person. It. it and you, you start to wonder how much influence people that should not be having influence are actually having. And when you have someone that honestly has, first of all, he has no baseball operations experience prior to this. And now he's coming from a different sport. He hasn't been in baseball for a while. And all of a sudden you're heaping GM duties on him. And I know we talked about how it doesn't really matter in September. Um, obviously, these calls were probably dictated by, by AJ. But... You know, it really starts to wonder, you know, how the web of power is actually constructed within the Padres. And I think that's a good topic for another podcast, by the way. Um, but 
let's close out the episode on one issue. And I, I saw it debated on Twitter, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, all with all the talk of like, should they fire AJ? I mean, they're not going to fire AJ, but uh, you know, the standard argument against firing AJ is that it would ruin continuity and it would basically reset the rebuild. And I think I kind of argued, and I saw like Woe Doctor are arguing it as well that. I'm not sure it would be as catastrophic to continuity. It's not ideal. Don't get me wrong. But uh, there's no guarantee that like Logan White would quit if AJ were fired. Or that I, I think the only one who's really been tied historically to AJ is Don Welke. Um, I think like the other guys, you know, Yuleman, um, Josh Stein, certainly, and, um, and Logan White, I, I don't know if they're really going anywhere if AJ quits and if they stay I'm not sure that the rebuild really is resetting well actually like like do you do you think the process would really be worse if Logan White you know at at this point they can't sign internationals for three years which is what AJ is here for I mean Logan White's the amateur draft guy so so I mean in your opinion do you think it really would would destroy the rebuild at this point I mean it depends on you know and I think the hypothetical was if you could if you could get rid of D, but AJ had to get fired as well, and that you know they hire a GM or they promote someone from within, and then we get a new team president, preferably like baseball ops guy. I don't know. I, I is the team worse? Oh man, I I, I hate that sort of thing because it's like uh, on the one hand I really want D gone, but at the same time I think the some of the stuff that AJ has done are things that. You know, let's just say that he gets replaced by an average GM. It's going to be worse. I think based on the progression I've seen in the minor league system this year, which is somewhat unprecedented from the pot, from a Padres perspective, and the fact that every time you change general managers, and I made this point last podcast, you, you get a person that has a different opinion of your prospect system, and they end up getting rid of the you know, the AJ guys, and you generally are selling low. But, but do you, if you if you promote from within, from AJ's team, like usually when you fire a GM, you clean house. But like, let's say you fire, you fire AJ and you promote Logan White. I mean, Logan White was in on all these people that they signed or drafted. Yeah, I mean, that's not a terrible result. Like, if, if it is something, I mean, you're, you're predicating it on getting rid of the two people at the top, but being able to hold on to everyone else. Minus Welke. Let's say you lose Welke. I don't think it's a safe assumption that that would happen uh, because maybe AJ gets hired somewhere else and he brings these people over there as well and gives them, you know, the way it's structured now, sure, there's Logan White might be considered his top underling or, you know, someone else. Josh Stein. Josh Stein, sure. You know, if AJ Preller went somewhere else, and I think that there'd be, you know, there would be some interested parties in him, I I would imagine. Uh, As a GM? You think so? Maybe. I don't think he's done a terrible job here. I know Turner, obviously, that's that's looking worse and worse every day. Um, but I don't think he's done a terrible job, especially if you're someone, you, you know, if you're a franchise that has not maxed out your international signing bonus pool in one of these seasons, and you're saying, all right, we want him to come in and do the same thing for us. I think that's a reasonable assumption. AJ could then come in and say, okay, well, I can give, you know, a third of the people in the Padres organization, I can give them promotion to bring them over here. I don't know if that's so. What, what I'm saying is, I don't think it's a safe assumption that you can just say, "Okay, we fired him, we fire AJ, and whoever we hire as team president, whoever we hire as GM or promote to GM, it's just going to be sunny." I just don't believe that that would be the case. Um, interestingly, I did put it out on Twitter, a poll, and I know it's not scientific because it's just my followers on Twitter. Uh, what should the Padres do? And I 
had four options there. One of them was to keep both D and AJ. One was to fire them both. And then the other was to fire D, keep AJ, fire AJ, keep D. And combined, both the plurality and the majority vote was to fire D and keep AJ at 78%. Fire both of them was only at 16%. So if you're talking about what the fans want right now, at least the people that follow me on Twitter, and I'm making an assumption that those are the same people listening to us now, uh, a grand total of 94% of them want to fire D and only... Um, what is it for fire AJ here? It would be 18% want to fire AJ. So if you're going f- basically off what fans want, fans just want D fired and they want to keep AJ. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a very fair thing to do because D should not have baseball or operations input. And, you know, you can really separate out what the most of his responsibilities are in terms of season ticket sales and executing you know, deals with sponsors and stuff from the baseball ops side. Um, well, so interestingly, I mean, we can actually cross-reference polls because Gaslamp Ball did a, a semi-similar one. They had 400 votes. Who should be fired? Nobody, AJ Preller, Mike D, or Preller and D. And uh, nobody only got 16%. 5% AJ, 41% Mike D, and 38% Preller and D. Yeah, so I guess they're a little bit, a little bit stronger in terms of firing Preller. Uh, than my poll was, but I think that the same, you know, the same uh, conclusion can be drawn in that most people want D fired, but don't want AJ fired. So correct, yeah. yeah. So I think, well, and I would say the the, the listeners here and the Gaslamp Ball crew, uh, if you were to draw draw a Venn diagram, they don't intersect very much. So I think you're you're, you're drawn. I I do think it does on Mike D. The, 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 and we said this from Fire Mike D is that the unifying factor for the Padres blogosphere is we er, most everyone wants Mike D. No, I was just speaking in terms of people who listen to this and people who like the physical people who listen to this and the physical people who read Gaslamp Ball. Like the overlap there is not a lot. So you're getting different opinions. But the fact that you're getting different opinions and they still agree on Fire Mike D is a pretty yeah, strong yeah. indicator. But okay. Um, anyways, we've we've gone a little bit longer than I intended because I, it is pretty late here. But um, anything else you wanted to touch on here before we end the podcast? No, I think that's it. I think the next ten days or so are going to be very exciting for hardcore fans. Uh, I think casual fans are tuned out and won't be tuning in. But uh, I'm excited, obviously, to see these guys play. Yeah, I'm going to um, actually use my baseball. Uh, <laughs> My my uh, MLB TV subscription finally, I haven't used it in probably I don't know two and a half weeks. I think I tuned out sometime in August, so I'm gonna fire that back up again and and, and watch Margot and Hedges and. Yeah, I mean, I think it's be. pretty much must see TV, you know, other than the awful pitching. But uh, so yeah, and you know, today tonight we just tied Arizona for last place in the NL West, so there's still draft position to play for, and uh, I, I think the last ten days are gonna be pretty exciting. It doesn't take much for me though, because last season they called up Cody Decker. Oh, you know, a non a non prospect, and that was enough. For I have me one to last question. Tune in, Do, and and this is something that I uh, I was asked actually by a coworker. When was when was the last time that call ups was this exciting for the Padres? Has it ever been this exciting? Uh, I I remember it. So he had, the, the last hyped call up that I can think of that was anywhere near this was Chase Headley, yeah. the savior. Yep, I remember that, and he came up and got a double for us, and I. And even he wasn't hyped like this. When Rizzo got called up, I, I think that was also like a savior type thing. And he, 
he hit this monster double off the wall in his first game. Maybe it was a triple. It was, it was some. He hit a very strong extra base hit and got everyone excited, and then hit like point zero five zero. You know, the rest of the the rest of his time up, but uh, nothing really compares to the hype of this. And that's because it's got the full. You know, like El Paso made the playoffs last year. Uh, we didn't hear a word about it because the roster wasn't that exciting. And the team was still trying to push the we're competitive, we're, you know, trying to push the big league team. And at this point, the entire PR machine of the Padres is is pushing, you know, everyone that's not on the major league roster. So, you know, it's 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 just uh, the hype train for this is, is probably unprecedented for the Padres. I think it is, too. And like the last time we had a prospect like this high up get called up. Like I, I was, I, I quoted Sean Burroughs. I said probably Sean Burroughs, but he didn't even come up like this. Like he started the year for us in April, so it's not the same as someone coming up in September and providing, you know, a, you know, a shot of adrenaline in the arm for the fan base late in the year. I, I can't even think of one to be honest. So uh, I do think this is like the most exciting September call-ups that I can remember in my lifetime for the Padres. Yeah, and it's a little different too because there's multiple you know, multiple players that are hyped. You know, we're used to having just one, you know, jewel of the minor league system that gets called up. And it's bad because then we put all of our hopes and dreams on that one player. So maybe, you know, it's a little better that it's being spread across a few guys. Yeah, I'm just going rattling through my brain. I know Jake Peavy got called up, like, in the middle of that year. But he wasn't, like, a top prospect. He wasn't in terms of... And they called him up straight from double A and... Yeah, it was you know. It was not... There was no build-up to it. I mean, Tankersley, if you're talking like where their prospect ranking was and like if you relate that to, I mean, prospects just weren't as hyped in the old days. It wasn't, people didn't know like the rankings that well. Uh, I mean, Tankersley was really highly ranked at the time he was called up, but I, I don't remember there being that much hype about it. People, people knew the name and I think they were excited about it, but not like this. And then in recent history, I mean, have we had a prospect that's been as highly ranked as Margot? I mean, I don't think so. Um, Hedges? I mean, Hedges was pretty high up. You, the thing is, you would have to imagine it would have been Trey Turner um, if, if he had gotten called up. Josh Barfield was a name that I brought, came to my mind, but I, th I don't think he was like 50. Was like a low top 100. Yeah, I think he was like, he, he might have peaked at like 55 or something like that. I could look it up, but it's really not that important. And and honestly, he had a great first year, or a good first year at least. Well, yeah, he ended up getting traded for Kuzma. I mean, Jerko? Are we talking Jerko? Maybe Khalil Green. Khalil Green might be a good one because he was a first round pick. He was a shortstop. We had just flashy. We yeah. had just gone through like just like the gauntlet of crappy stuff. Dave, Davey Cruz, Ronaldo Mendez, right? Oh, God, so yeah. like maybe Khalil Green's the answer here. Um, I don't know what he ever got ranked in terms of. Prospect ranking. I imagine he's, he had to be top. Had to be high because he was drafted very highly. I mean, he was a 50. Golden Spikes winner. Yeah, he had to be top fifty. So, I'm going to go with Khalil Green. It's been it's been that long. And even then, it was probably just him. And I mean, Xavier and Eddie kind of came up at the same time too. Um, but I don't think he was as highly ranked. No. So Green peaked at number fifty-seven prospect, which is actually lower than I expected. Yeah, me too. But, um. I don't know. He, like, made the team out of spring training, didn't he? So there wasn't this mid-season hype about him. I mean, Headley, that's really the only thing. And, I mean, I recall people on 1090, you know, really hyping him. I mean, he he was the savior at the time. So 
I don't know. I, I'm going to go Headley. You can go Khalil. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to. Yeah, I can't really think of anyone else. I was racking my brain here. Just a lot of busts. That's fine. You can admit that I'm right with Chase Headley. Matt Clement, like I, I don't know. He was he was he was, no, I don't think he was so. a big prospect, but it wasn't it was not the same back then. And that was like when he came up like right after the World Series team, so it just wasn't very exciting. Um yeah, so I think it's gotta be Khalil Green and but in terms of volume, this is it. This is the best. Ugh, but Trey Turner would have been it. Yeah, it would have. Okay, well, that's gonna do it for this podcast. Uh until next time, Padres fans, go Padres. Go Padres.